What happened to you guys? You just got super quiet on me. It's so spooky. Can I just say before we dismiss the kids that you guys are sounding great during worship. I mean, this is, you guys are getting super good. We're going to cut an album maybe later this uh, this year. So kids, you guys are dismissed. And uh, the elementary kids are headed out with, with Miss Heather. And then the youth group, Pastor Chris, is healed and back with us. So you guys are out of here. And uh, God bless you guys as you go out. But whatever you do, just get out of here. So, in Jesus' name. So yeah, there's a bird in here. And so the doors are open. We're hoping that he kind of gets bored with me and finds his way out of this place. So it's a little chilly in here, but, uh, but that's okay. So um, I'm super excited to be pressing ahead in our study through the book of Joshua. Also, again, just to encourage you guys, if you're not yet part of uh, a life group, uh, they kicked off this week and they were uh, just fantastic. So a couple different ones happening Wednesday nights. There's a, the sermon discussion group on Wednesday night uh, at the Nelsons. I really want to encourage you guys to consider there's nothing to do in preparation for it except be here on Sunday morning. And then it's an opportunity on Wednesday nights with a bunch of other like-minded believers just to kind of explore some of the things that we just plain don't have time to cover here on Sunday mornings. I know it's uh, surprising to you that speaking as long as I speak, that we don't cover everything, but we don't nearly even scratch the surface, as you know, just all of the different things that, that the Lord wants to speak to us in the Bible. So Wednesday nights at the Nelsons is a great opportunity to do that. Of course, Pastor Jeff is teaching through the book of James on Wednesday nights with an opportunity to discuss what you're learning. And then on Thursday nights as well at the Pruce House, Justin is, uh, is taking you guys through the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you ever wanted to know about the meaning of life, that's your group on Thursday nights. Justin will answer all of your questions. He's a teacher, so he knows things about things. So um, hopefully you've got a Bible, and if you don't, we have some for you. Just raise your hands, and one of the guys will bring you a Bible, um, uh, which you're going to want this morning just to make sure I'm not making things up. So let's pray, and just let's ask the Lord to bless us as we go uh, to the Word this morning. So Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. And yes, Lord, we do pray for our little feathered friend, Lord, that he would find his way out of here to safety the, this morning, Lord, even as we're here. Um, Father, pray that you'd help us to just to focus on your word and just to focus on those things that your spirit wants to speak to us this morning. Uh, we pray you'd give us ears to hear, Lord, as we pray each and every week. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Joshua chapter 2, and we just jumped in and kind of joined in with Joshua last week as he stood there remember, with the children of Israel, poised once again, 40 years later, to enter into the promised land. We've been looking at this history of the children of Israel, which we talked about the fact that in so many ways it pictures for us, it provides all of these different types to us of our own spiritual experience with the Lord beginning with their bondage in Egypt, which pictures our time in the world, to their exodus out of Egypt, which pictures our own salvation out of the world. And then the parting of the Red Sea, picturing our baptism, remember our separation from the world, to their then wandering in the wilderness 
for 40 full years because of their faithlessness really to step out in faith and enter into the promised land, which we said itself pictures for us that life that God has for us right here on earth. That life of fullness and that life of abundance, that life where we're walking in and we are fully claiming for ourselves all of those precious promises of God. That point when we get in our walks where we're ready to come out of the wilderness and into God's fullness. And we saw as we left off last time that the, the Moses, the, the servant of God, the giver of the law, who we said was a picture of the law, he was dead. And so now it was Joshua, and it was only Joshua who pictures Jesus for us. It was Joshua who could and would now lead the people into, by faith, into those promises and into that promised land. And we saw quickly just as, you know, the Lord preparing Joshua in the very same ways that he prepares us, that call to enter in by faith to those promises. Three days time, the Lord told Joshua that he would take those people over the Jordan River. And then we saw Joshua encouraged by the promises of God and strengthened by the presence of God and enabled, remember, by the power of God. We watched the preparation of the people of God, and then that promise of the people to follow after God as they followed Joshua just the way they had followed Moses. So now today, as we turn the page, we look together at chapter 2, we're going to see something that's really pretty interesting and something that seems in the flow of the story to actually only interrupt the story. Because chapter 1, remember, speaks all about the preparation of entering into the promised land. Chapter 3 gives us the actual crossing over and the entry into the land itself. But chapter 2 kind of sits here right in the middle of those two things with an account that really doesn't advance the action of the story. And it, it has caused some to even question and wonder why chapter 2 is even here. And yet I think that we're going to see as we work our way through it that it is such an important account. It provides us with yet another incredibly important picture of our own lives and of that unexpected grace and of the incredible mercy of our God. It's the well-known, it's the story, of course, of Rahab. And it's a story all about finding God's grace in a very unlikely place. And so remember, everything we're going to read takes place during those three days. Those three days that the Lord had commanded the nation to wait there on the banks of the Jordan. And we're going to see, as we said last week, that God has a very special purpose for those three days. And so we're picking it up, right? We got the Israelites encamped on the east side of the Jordan, three days until they would cross over the Jordan and begin that process really of taking the land. And it says in verse one of Joshua chapter two, that now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. 
So here is Joshua, we said, right, an experienced military leader, and he sends out this small reconnaissance team. Notice he sends out just two spies, right, not 12 spies, right? The number 12 may, you know, have stuck the wrong way with Joshua. 12 hadn't worked out very well 40 years earlier. So he sends out just two men, two men to gather intelligence for this coming conquest of the very first city that was just across the river that they would need to conquer, and that was the city of Jericho. And what I love before we go on is that we can see that Joshua so totally trusted that God was going to somehow soon get them across this mighty river that was uncrossable that he wasn't even worried about that part. And so Joshua has set his sights beyond that on the very first battle that he knew that they would face in the land because he could see from where he was that it, this wouldn't be an easy one. Jericho was a huge and formidable city by ancient standards there in the ancient world. So they say the size of Jericho was about 10 acres square, which is sort of like eight football fields lined up, four fields and four fields. Uh, somebody also compared it to be about two and a half Walmart supercenters. So that gives you the idea, this was not a small city, right, by ancient standards, and it was perhaps the oldest city in the world. It sat in a very particular part of Israel, right there in the broadest part of the plain of Jordan, and it dominated the entire region around it. All of the pathways and all of the trade routes in and out and branching out to the rest of the promised land, right, whether it was north or south or east or west, it controlled all of that. And like many ancient cities, it was a walled city. In fact, Jericho was a double-walled city. So it had an inner wall and it had an outer wall, which were separated, we think, by about 15 feet. Each of the walls could have been as much as anywhere from 6 to 10 feet thick and as much as 40 feet high. And there were these fortified gates and military towers and this mighty military force inside of the city that protected the population and then protected that dominance that they had over the whole region. So all of that to say that Joshua would understandably be pretty interested in gathering as much information as possible as he could about this huge obstacle that was in their path. Now, you may have heard some suggest that in sending out the spies, Joshua is showing a faithlessness on his part. And yet in reality, I think that actually it shows his faithfulness. Because at this point, we can only assume that Joshua hasn't yet received the battle plan from the Lord. And so without receiving that, Joshua is only doing what any wise commander-in-chief would do as he waits on that direction. Remember, God's promises of success for us should never lull us into just doing nothing. But instead, God's promises of success should spur us on to have us step out and to at least do something. Right, to do what we can do while we wait on the Lord to do what we know it is that only he can do. 
And so that's precisely what we're seeing Joshua do. He sends out this small team, just two men. He sends them out on this recon mission. And yet what we're going to see is that the Lord has even greater things in mind for this mission and for these men and for a woman that they are about to meet. Look at the rest of verse 1. It says, So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. So it may have been as much of a 12-mile a trip for these spies as they came out from the camp of Israel, across the Jordan, into Jericho, and right into the house of a harlot. So certainly, the story of Rahab, we're going to find grace in an unlikely place, starting out right here in a harlot's house in this wicked city. Now, some have wondered, and maybe you're wondering right now, how these two nice Jewish boys on their very first trip into the big city, remember, these boys had spent their entire lives wandering around in the wilderness for the last 40 years, how on their very first trip to the big city, how they ended up at the house of a harlot. Now, through the years, many people have tried to kind of salvage their reputation and even to kind of rehab Rahab and her reputation by saying that she wasn't actually really a harlot. And the way they do it is by pointing out that you can translate the word harlot in the Hebrew here. You can just as easily translate it as innkeeper. So they say that, that Rahab was certainly running kind of a hotel here in Jericho. And that's true linguistically, at least here in the Hebrew. And yet, every time they mention her in the New Testament, the word that's used to describe her there is not innkeeper, it's harlot. And there is only one meaning for the Greek word that's used there, and that's that she was a harlot, right? She was a hooker who ran this kind of house that hosted men from out of town and probably had some clientele of men that lived in town, right? She was a pagan prostitute. She was steeped in the idolatry and the gross immorality of her people. She was a sinner who was wallowing in the depravity and the basest wickedness, right, that the city had to offer. And yet we're going to see that this is the woman whom the Lord still loved greatly. And it's a woman that we're going to see that the Lord would use mightily. And I don't know about you, but I love that. Because Rahab reminds me that God could love even me. And that God could use even me. And the Bible reminds us that God so often, he uses broken people because he wants to save broken people. He wants to heal hurting people. And he uses the least likely people. And then he does these remarkable things through them, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things, other translations say the base things of the world, to put to shame the things which are mighty. And as we read that verse, I want to give you one guess where we are in that equation. 
right? We are not the mighty things. We are not the wise things. We are the foolish things, the weak things, and the base things. And it is a wonderful thing that the Lord does there. And yet still, people will sort of try to clean things up around Rahab, probably somehow to, to sometimes try to protect God's reputation because they're afraid, well, what will people think? And they might misunderstand just what kind of people it is that God will deal with, right? They might misunderstand what kind of people it is that God's interested in. They might wonder what kind of a God could this possibly be? So again, they try to rehab Rahab to protect God's reputation. They say, oh, she wasn't really a harlot. She was an innkeeper. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that whenever I read that kind of thing or I hear that kind of thing, and I say, hey, please don't protect me from that God. Amen? I'm a sinner. I don't want to be protected from the knowledge that God loves and God wants to save Rahab's. I don't want to be protected from the knowledge that he's willing to save people like Rahab and to use people like Rahab. Don't protect me from that God. That's the God I need. That's the God I need not only to save me, but then to keep me between now and the time I finally get to heaven. And many people see in Rahab, and I think we'll see as we learn more about Rahab, that there, she is a beautiful picture, again, or a type of us, and specifically of the church. As we're going to see, she becomes this very undeserving object of God's grace and of his wonderful salvation. At this point, right, probably everybody in Jericho would have voted her least likely to find God in Jericho. Even amongst all of the violence and the immorality and the wickedness of that Canaanite culture, but we're going to see that the Lord had his eye on this woman because she had her eye on him. And it was no accident at all that these nice Jewish boys ended up here in a place like this. And so we don't need to speculate too much as to why these guys were at Rahab's, except I will point this out. From a purely strategic perspective, as a spy coming into a hostile city, you just don't march up to the Jericho Plaza Hilton Hotel and check in for the night. So Rahab's house of ill repute probably was the safest place that these guys could have hoped to hide and maybe to gather intel from the loose-lipped locals who were there, right, and also didn't want anybody else to know why they were there, right? So we're going to see next, though, is that even though this was probably the safest place they could be, it wasn't safe enough. And their arrival leaks out anyway. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says that it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Now understand, the entire city of Jericho at this point was on high alert. And probably they had been for years. 
as upwards of possibly three million Israelites had been encamped just across the river. And this threat of a coming invasion was looming and was imminent. We're going to soon see that the news of their success in defeating their enemies and of the power of this God that they served, it was widely known. And imagine you're the king and you're looking out your window across the Jordan from the city of Jericho there on a starry clear night. And over in the distance, over this encampment of three million Jews, which they say potentially spanned approximately seven miles from one end to the other. But you're looking over across the Jordan at night and over the center of the camp was constantly burning this pillar of fire up into the sky all night long. Night after night, every night, right out of your palace window. So you can bet that when word reached Jericho's king that the spies from these people had come into his city and the process had probably begun of this invasion that he knew was happening, he knew precisely what was going on. And so he sends to Rahab and he asks to turn them over to him. But it says in verse 4 that then the woman took the two men and hid them. And so she said, yes, the men came, up to me, uh, came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax. That'll be important in a few weeks. She'd hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Now, this is remarkable when you think about it, because why would a pagan prostitute put her life on the line to lie to the police only to protect these two men that she doesn't even know? What would have made much more sense and would have probably been more in keeping with her kind of questionable character would have been for her maybe to have bartered with the life of these guests in order to get something for herself, right? To win some more favor with the king, right? But instead, she risks everything, right? She risks her business, risks her livelihood, risks her very life itself by harboring and hiding these two Jews, right? The enemies of Jericho. Why? Because the Lord had already been working in her hardened heart. And at this moment, she saw these men of Israel not at all as her enemies, but she saw them as the answer from heaven itself to the desire of her heart. She saw them now as the source of her salvation, as we're going to see in just a moment. So she hides them in the very same way that you would hide a treasure. All right, so in this story where we're finding grace in an unlikely place, not only do we find it in a harlot's house in a wicked city, but we also find it in the heart of this harlot herself. 
because Rahab could sense in her spirit that she had something priceless here. She says, here are these two men who just happened to come into my place from the children of Israel and the God that they serve. And I know I've got a tremendous treasure here. And so she takes a tremendous risk. She exercises a growing sort of a tremendous faith by protecting them. And in fact, it's in doing that, it's her actions here in hiding the spies, that's what the New Testament authors can uh, commend her for as an evidence of this developing faith. James writes this, and if you can get a, if you can get a, a, a commendation from James, that's saying something. James writes, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works or considered to be righteous when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. And then in the letter to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, it says that by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So she had just the beginnings of an understanding about the God of Israel, and she immediately backs it up with this faith-filled action because these two men represented the people of this great God and she wasn't afraid at all to assist them in what they were doing. So she hides them, she sends the king's soldiers on this wild goose chase just to throw them off of the trail. Then it says in verse seven that the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords, that would be the, the crossing place. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the soldiers take the bait, right? They take off toward the east and they get about as far as the, the river crossing. They're searching after the spies. So at this point, Rahab's ruse had been a rousing success. Right, the spies were safe, the heat was off, she was in the clear. Now, it is at this point precisely when people will raise the objection, usually, about whether or not Rahab was justified in her lie. And no, I am not going to go too far down that rabbit hole. Instead, you can discuss that in depth in your life group on Wednesday night. You guys can kick that back and forth. Jeff and Diane will have all the answers about that. But what I will say is this. Let's be careful not to hold Rahab to the same standard that we'd hopefully be holding ourselves. So Rahab's lie may not be, be justified, but it does show courage. It shows Lots of courage. Remember, at this moment, she was a pagan prostitute in a city and a culture which was wholly given over to immorality, wholly given over to the worship of false gods. Lying in that time was just a way of life. She's had no previous contact whatsoever with the word of God or with the things of God. 
at this point, she is who she is, and she does what she does. And so understand this, that when the Bible sometimes records the, question, the questionable actions of people, it's not necessarily to be taken as an endorsement by God of those actions. It's just a record of what happened. And the New Testament authors don't commend Rahab for what she did as much as for why she did it. That it was a very tangible expression of her infant faith. I'll also say, just for you to talk about on Wednesday, that some students consider that the lie of Rahab was absolutely justified along the lines of being kind of a righteous wartime lie. A lie told in the time of war to preserve life, just like those who hid the Jews during the Holocaust. They would say that they were, just as she was, on the right side of the truth, and that the life and death circumstance justified her lie. Now, all the ethical acrobatics aside, the, the point here is that Rahab's faith, to whatever extent it was developing, it was a real faith. And she demonstrated it by taking action and hiding these spies, risking her life to protect them. And those actions earned her a spot in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. She is the only other Old Testament woman in the Hall of Faith, aside from Sarah, I think also that what this whole thing reminds us of is that our God has the amazing ability to filter out the bad and to preserve the good. Because again, it, we're finding grace in an unlikely place, not only in a harlot's house in a wicked city, not only in the heart of a harlot her, herself, but we're also finding God's grace even in the lie of this pagan prostitute. In the New Testament, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, we all know the passage where Paul explains that as believers in Jesus, that we're going to be judged by Jesus for the things we did and given rewards for the things that were good. Now in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul also tells us that those same works as believers are going to be judged by fire. But what we need to understand is that the fire isn't meant to destroy what we did, it's only meant to purify what we did. Here's what Paul says, he says, if anyone builds on this foundation, or the foundation of the gospel, if we build on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. So the Lord does test our works by fire, but then he pokes around in all of the smoldering pile of the rubble and the stubble that's left. And God has this ability to pick out the jewels that remain. And that's what he rewards us for. 
So the, many might call Rahab a harlot. Many might call her a liar, but not God. Simply because she believed in him, he calls her a hero. And we're going to see that he works with her and he works in her to bring her along in her faith. Because now, at this point in our story, with the gates safely shut and the city secured and kind of settling in for the night, we read next, look at verses 8 through 11. It says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now that is a declaration of faith. And it's a declaration of faith right from the lips of a wicked woman who understand her entire life had been imprisoned in this pagan idolatry. So we find God's grace in the unlikely place of the faith of this wicked woman. And what she said here about God shows us that she understood more about God. She had more faith in God than a lot of believers do even today. Notice she believed not only was he the God of heaven, not only was he the God over earth, but she could see that he was a personal God. Right? She says to them that he's your God. He's a personal God who would work on behalf of those who trusted in him, that he would go before them and that he would fight on behalf of them and that he would fulfill all of the promises that he had made to them. Notice this, each time of the three times that she uses the word Lord in these three verses, in your Bible, it should be in all caps because the name that she uses is Yahweh. The name that she uses is Jehovah. That's the personal name. It's the covenant name for God that was used only by the Jews, referring to their God, the God of the Jews. And she knew that at that point that she was outside of that covenant. So Rahab is this beautiful picture of the church in that at this point she was a sinner who was outside of the covenant promises of God. She was under the condemnation of God. She knew that judgment was coming. She knew that Jericho had already been declared condemned by God, but also, just like the church, she's been given this period of grace to allow her to come to repentance. She had heard this powerful testimony of God's mighty works. It was drawing her to faith. And so basically what she's saying to these men is she's saying, look, I can see that there isn't a God or a collection of gods anywhere in this whole world that can do what your God has done in your history for your people. And we are all 
terrified of the fact that you are walking in obedience to God because we know that we are on the wrong side of this equation. And this is precisely the thing that God had promised that he would do for Israel and that he would do with Israel. Because 40 years earlier in Exodus 15, when they had just crossed over the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, I should say, Moses had declared this. He said that the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall upon them. So that was 40 years ago. But just one year before this, in Deuteronomy 2, right, just before that defeat of Sihon of Heshbon that Rahab mentions there in verse 10, this is what the Lord had declared. He said, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And as a result of that, even here within this greatly fortified and seemingly impenetrable walled fortress city, there was this terror in the hearts of these people. A 40-year fear, this supernatural fear, placed there by God because he is faithful to his promises. And I think that it's wonderful to realize that there is a fear, both in the physical, but especially in the spiritual realm, even today, which can come upon the enemies of God when the people of God start to move and really start to walk and start to work in obedience to what God has commanded. And the fear doesn't exist because of our strength or because of our ability. It exists only because of his, because they know what he's capable of. Because they've seen and because they've heard. And it may look like we are losing the battle for culture and the battle for morality within this world, but God is still working and he is still capable to save people out of all of that. And you can bet that there is a healthy fear in the heart of our enemy, especially in the realm of the spirit. When they look down and they see God's people walking in God's power. And so just like Rahab, just like the people of Jericho, here Rahab says, look, we know that you are going to take this land just as surely as I'm standing here in front of you. Now, therefore, she says in verse 12, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, Jehovah, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Once again, Rahab's faith is a remarkable faith. She knew that this kind of this all-powerful Jehovah God, she knew that he could surely judge but she also knew that he could save. I mean, 
you can have a 20-minute conversation with a fellow believer at a home group and not find as much faith in the Lord as we find from this harlot here in Jericho. And of course, I mean a home group at another church, right? The home groups at our church are full of faith-filled, awesome giants in the faith. She knew she needed saving. She knew her family needed to be saved. And she knew that it was the God of Israel, that he was the one who could do it. Because not only had she heard of his power and of his might, not only had she heard all of these things that made the other, you know, in unrepentant hearts in Jericho melt, but as she listened to their history, and as she listened to the testimony about their God, what she heard what Rahab heard was something that quickened her in her spirit, and she heard something that encouraged her in her heart, because this was a great and a terrible and an awesome God, but he was also a merciful God. He was a good God, he was a gracious God, and he was a God of slaves. He was a God who delivers slaves from their bondage, and from their oppression, and she knew that she had been a slave for too long. She had been in bondage to her own sin and to her own sinful lifestyle, and she desperately wanted to be delivered from all of that. Just in the very same way that so many in this room or so many who are tuned in this morning have already been delivered. Every one of us, we were each slaves to our own sin, or to the devil, to this world, and yet the Lord delivered each of us from that bondage. He sets slaves free, and he wants to do it for everyone. And Rahab's heart had heard that and it somehow had resonated with her. And so while the rest of the land is terrified and melting, this desperate harlot had opened up her heart to the mercy of the living God. This God of slaves, this deliverer, this merciful God. And I think that Rahab thought, maybe I actually have a place. And what she wanted was what she wanted, the assurance of that place. And she wanted the assurance that she could be delivered. And she wanted to leave her sinful life and leave this corrupt culture and come to be with God's people. And so the men, it says in verse 14, answered her. They said, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. So they swore her to secrecy and they promised her that they would protect her life just like she had protected their lives. And then verse 15, she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall and she said to them, get to the mountain lest the pursuers meet you, hide there three days until the pursuers have returned and afterward you may go your own way. So remember, she just sent the king's men east, so now she sends the spies just a half mile to the west 
to hide out in one of the many mountain caves that were in these limestone cliffs that you can see right from the city of Jericho even today. Right? So they escape out of the city and down this rope from her house, which was built, as many homes were, right there in the city wall, probably built into that space between the two fortified walls of the city. And so, verse 17, the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. So as they leave, they give her what would be the two things that would guarantee her own safety and the safety of her whole family as the Israelites would come to conquer Jericho. This red cord hung from the window it would be a sign to any approaching Israelite soldier that that house and anyone is it was in it was to be spared from the destruction. And now we notice, of course, that the color of the rope is both unique and, of course, it's significant. It's not a brown rope. It's not a purple rope. It's a red rope because it reminds us of blood. And it reminds us, of course, it points back to some very similar imagery from the first Passover before the Exodus. Remember how the Israelites were instructed to take the blood of the sacrifice and apply it to the, the doorposts and to the lentils of the house so that the house and everyone inside the house was now covered by the blood and as the angel of death then would pass over that house during the 10th plague. So that house would become a house of salvation and uh, instead of a house of destruction. And we know that this picture of the Passover points, of course, to the cross. It's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality because it's the blood of Jesus Christ and his sinless sacrifice as it's applied to our lives. That's what protects us from the judgment and the destruction that our sin deserves. And interestingly, according to some historians, in those days, prostitutes would very often paint their windowsills with bright red paint, probably to attract those who might be looking for such services, right? It's kind of the original red light district. It's the red sill district, right? At any rate, Rahab's windowsills may have indeed been painted red, so by hanging the scarlet cord out over her red-colored windowsills, Rahab would have been forming a cross on the side of the city wall of Jericho. 
So this same beautiful picture that saved the families of Israel in the Passover, right, as they applied the blood to the, to the top and to the sides and even to the bottom of their doors, it would be this very same thing that would save this pagan family in Jericho as this red rope hung down the wall like the blood of Jesus as it dripped down the cross. You may have heard theologians or, or Bible students sometimes refer to or use this term, but there's this beautiful scarlet thread of redemption that runs through the scriptures literally because the blood of Christ runs through the entire Bible symbolically. Beginning way back with the animals that were killed in the Garden of Eden to provide the coverings for Adam and Eve, to the ram that took Isaac's place on Mount Moriah at the altar there, to the Passover lamb, to the institution of all the sacrificial system, to this very scarlet rope of Rahab here, to the thousands of years of sacrifices that would be performed at the tabernacle and in the temple. This scarlet thread runs all the way up to when John the Baptist saw Jesus and declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this scarlet thread of redemption then pools at the foot of the cross where Jesus would finally say, it is finished before that pool then flows into each and every one of our lives to cleanse us of our personal sins. It says in Hebrews chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that's why this symbolism of the scarlet thread in the Bible is so significant and it's so beautiful because it's a picture of Jesus' atonement for our sins that's found all the way through all of the revelation of God. So whether to a Jew or a Gentile or whether in Israel or in Jericho or whether to a Joshua or to a Rahab, the message is always the same. And what we see is that God's mercy and his forgiveness and his grace extended here to Rahab the harlot is now signified by this red rope, right? This rope of Scarlet, which itself is a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. You talk about faith in action, right? Rahab wasted no time Right? In placing that cord just as they had said right then and right there. She didn't know when the judgment was ultimately going to come. But boy, she was going to be prepared when it did come. So we find this grace right in the unlikely place of this harlot's house in a wicked city, in the heart of the harlot herself, in the lie of this pagan prostitute, in the faith of this wicked woman, and now finally in this red rope hung from a wall window. And she knew that this scarlet cord was the assurance for her salvation. It was an indication, it was this tangible token of her spiritual salvation, and it was critical. Because understand that even despite 
Rahab's deep desire, and despite her faith, and despite the promises of these spies, she would have perished unless she had put her complete trust in this blood-red cord cast down from her wall window. Without the scarlet cord, she couldn't have been saved just in the same way that apart from the blood of Jesus, we can't be saved. Verse 22 says, they departed, they went to the mountain, they stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. Of course they didn't, because they had gone east, the spies had gone west. They were looking in completely the wrong place. Verse 23, so the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this could have been a bit of a tricky conversation where these two guys come back and they say, okay, Josh, so first we stopped at the house of a harlot, but she was a really nice harlot. And it turned out that the Lord was really in this thing. Right, but you can imagine as they continue to share with Joshua, I believe that Joshua knew exactly what it was that the Lord had done and that the Lord truly was in this. Verse 24, it says that they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. And that's what Joshua wanted to hear, right? This is the intelligence that he had sent them to gather, and what an incredible encouragement that would have been for him. To understand that yes, it looks like God is working on both ends of this situation. We hear him speaking and giving us this instruction to conquer this land and now we see that his promise is also already at work in the land. And so Joshua thinks at this point, yeah, this thing's gonna be a success. Right, finding grace in this unlikely place, in this faith-building report of the faithfulness of God. And you notice that in all of these things, God just continues confirming their faith and developing their faith and strengthening their faith, especially for Joshua. Here he is, this brand new leader of these three million people, these whining three million people out there in the wilderness, but God had promised to go with him, and now God has just shown him not only would he be with him, but he had already gone before him. He had already gone ahead of him, just like he promised that he would. And I just love the way in these opening chapters, the way that we see our God is so personal, and he's so gentle, and he's so kind and how he develops our faith and really deepens our faith so that we're prepared for those things that he's called us to. And it's just beautiful what he's doing here, I think, to encourage Joshua in these early days in this new role. And all as a result of this spy mission that really wasn't about spying at all. Because here's the thing I want us to notice as we finish up. Notice that none of the information that these spies came back with, none of it will really be of any consequence from a military 
or a strategy perspective, and here's why. Because when we get to chapter 6, and the Israelites come to take Jericho, there will be nothing military about it. Right? Just some marching and some trumpeting and God himself bringing those walls of Jericho miraculously down in a heap. Now, I am sorry if you didn't know that that was how it ended. I didn't mean to spoil it for you. But really, this isn't the battle of Jericho at all. It's going to be more like the unbattle of Jericho. And so in reality, what I want us to see is that this spy mission wasn't at all about intelligence at all. It wasn't about reconnaissance at all. It was all about faith. It was all about increasing the faith in God's servant Joshua, but it was even more about confirming the faith of this one wicked woman. And it was all about bringing her to faith and drawing out her faith in the true and living God. It was all about one woman who God would deliver and save graciously so that he could then use her mightily. Again, one of only two women in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. This woman outside of the covenant promises who is now being brought into those promises because of her faith. And Rahab is always a testimony of the fact that in any culture, God is gracious and he is willing to stoop down even to the harlot, to stoop down even to the homeless addict or to the felon, right? God is willing to gather to himself anyone in any condition who is simply going to believe in him. And we have this story of this one harlot who lives on a wall, which is placed precariously, but precisely, I believe, right here in Joshua 2, right between the preparation to enter the land and the entry into the actual land itself. It's placed right here as an exhortation for each one of us as we would enter into the land for ourselves. Because what Rahab does is she takes all of our excuses away, and she demands genuine faith from us. Because there is not anybody sitting here this morning that can say, I was too bad or I am too bad, and God can't love me or God can't bless me. You can't say, I was too immoral, I was too sinful, or I was too whatever, or I've done too many things, or I've stepped over too many lines, and God can't love me, and God can't shower all these promises on me, because Rahab does away with all of that, and she demands our faith. And if we look at these spies, I think the challenge for us it's, is to spy out exactly what they just spied out. Do you really want to enter into the fullness of all of the promises of God and all of the things God has for you? Then you need to realize that it has nothing to do with who you were. It has nothing to do even with who you are, but it has everything to do with whether or not you will allow him to make you into what he wants to make you into in him. You see, the, the, the story of Rahab and this finding grace in the unlikely place, it's found finally and it's found fully 
in a future that's filled with the promises of God. God loved this woman. God loved this woman more than you can ever imagine in spite of her terribly sinful life. And she simply put her faith in him. She turned to him in this simple faith and she is going to be brought in to the covenant people and experience all of those covenant promises. And what we're going to see is that she's going to marry an Israelite. This pagan prostitute, she is going to marry an Israelite and she's going to have children. And her son's name is going to be Boaz. Yes, that Boaz. And when others are going to turn their back on Ruth because she's a Moabite, Boaz will have absolutely no problem showing kindness to her because his mother had been a Canaanite. His mother had been a Canaanite prostitute who had come to genuine faith in the living God and who had taught him his whole life about the love and the power and the grace and the mercy of that God. So Boaz will take Ruth and she will then have a son named Obed who will then have a son named Jesse, who will then have a son named David. Yes, that David. This is, Rahab is the great, great, great grandmother of King David, the greatest king of Israel, which of course also puts her where? It puts her right in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, Savior of the world, chose this woman, Rahab the prostitute, to be part of his family photo. You know, all those beautiful Christmas cards with the pictures that we get every Christmas, right? There's Rahab, right in the front row of Jesus' family photo. And you can bet that he couldn't be prouder of her because she is a trophy of his grace and of what he came to earth to do, to save sinners and then to transform us into something that's altogether different. And Rahab takes away all of our excuses and she should take away all of our apprehensions all of those apprehensions that for some reason we can't enter into this abundant fullness of these promises of God. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, you can come to him in simple faith just like Rahab did, just simply knowing that you need saving and you can make him your savior and your Lord. And then for all of you who are believers, for all of us who are, are learning and are growing in God's grace, growing in the likeness and the knowledge of Jesus, maybe some who are just here now and you're just kind of spying out the promises of God, I want you to spy out this one. Make sure you see 
her clearly. See Rahab clearly for who she is and who she was. And make sure you understand the incredible grace of God that's being put on display here for us in her life and understand that God wants to do the very same thing where? In your life. And he wants to do it today. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you so much for the story of Rahab. Lord, and we thank you the way that you just showered your grace upon her, Lord, and the way that you took her, Lord, in your mercy, and you transformed her, Lord, into a vessel that you could use for honor. Lord, I, I pray that the example of Rahab would not quickly depart from our minds, Lord, that you would implant it deeply within our own spirits. Lord, that if we ever begin to doubt you and your desire and your ability, Lord, to shower your promises and your blessings upon us, Lord, I want us to remember Rahab. So, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that's in that place, I pray that you would make the story of Rahab so real in their hearts, Lord, that these aren't simply words on a page. This is work that you did in the life of an actual person who was simply desperate for you, Lord, and open to what you wanted to do. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's, uh, let's worship the Lord together.